0: Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit.
1: Welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. This afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome my friend, Neil Aykroyd, to the GeoMob Podcast. I've known Neil for more than a decade, I think closer to two decades, and we've worked together, we've argued and we've drunk a bit of beer together as well. His Twitter bio says that he is on a lifelong mission to explore strange new worlds, now digital, spatial, and sustainability. Previously, he was the Chief Operating Officer and Acting stroke Deputy CEO of the Ordnance Survey. He's both a seriously heavyweight survey geek and a strategic, and in my opinion, very humorous thinker on our industry, and particularly on the role and future of national mapping agencies. So, first up, Neil, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here all the way from Norwich in Norfolk, so I do apologise if there's a slight delay, because obviously there's a bit of a time zone, probably about 70 years, I think, is the normal one for Norfolk. Yeah,
1: and you both thought about a a half a megabyte internet connection probably
2: <laughs> well the guy's still peddling the peddling's outside so i think we should be okay
1: okay fine well we'll we'll go quickly then so neil start off tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in geo
2: wow it's it's strange isn't it when you sort of uh, i guess i'm about in my life but like you even where you spend more time reflecting than you do it's actually more than worrying i think i've gone from a natural warrior to a natural reflector now and <laughs> my whole career has been in geo i did a geography degree in Durham University, I have to admit to that, being a surveyor now, I actually did a geography degree, Geographers Anonymous, but I actually did remote sensing, which was quite unusual. This was back in 81, 82. So remote sensing was really just, was just coming to sort of fruition. And, and we were looking at Landsat satellites using very old computers to run algorithms, so PDP 1134s, For people remember them, density slicing, all this cool stuff. We now all call, you know, AI and machine learning, but actually it was always the way I wanted a job outside, and so I applied uh, to various survey companies, and a couple of them saw satellites on my CV, and one of them immediately assumed that all satellites were the same, and they were starting to look at using satellites for positioning. There was a, a system called transit. So I was hired as a data analyst. My job was to that's even for data analyst was cool. I spent years trying to get rid of the name data analyst because I thought that's not a cool title. Now it's the, the coolest title. And my job was really to analyze and capture data from satellite systems for positioning. So a sort of baby geodesist in the making. How do you manage coordinate transformations? How do you go around and set up coordinate systems around the world? The company I worked for was DECA, which was a survey business famous for Navigation systems, Deca Navigator was actually a system designed for the D-Day landings. And, and my job was to analyze those systems and provide corrections because any land-based positioning system used to have propagation errors, speed of sound, speed of light, or speed of radio signals, as I say, getting into GPS territory now. And because of satellite on my CV, they assumed that I could do anything with satellites. So I ended up doing work on the very early GPS, this would be about 83, 1984. And I was given the task of testing and evaluating and developing GPS systems for many for oil exploration. And that gave rise to us developing the first differential GPS system, the first commercial service back in 85. And that had me traveling around the world, really doing survey work Oil rig positioning, first time I ever positioned oil rig with GPS, cable laying. I spent nearly a year on and off in China in the mid-80s, bringing on sort of positioning survey techniques into into China's early development of the oil resources they had, and really just bounced around the world, loving it. You know, I used to get an extra £15 a day if I went to a country that had local unrest or was in a war zone, so I used to go for those <laughs> because that was a lot of money, an extra £15 a day. Um, and of course, in the 20s... Know? In your 20s, you're immortal as well. So, And then actually got hired by Trimble. Many will know Trimble. as a big US technology company. I was the first employee out of the USA. So we set up a little office. It was actually a sales guy as well. We set up a little office in Tunbridge, Kent. Initially, about three or four of us. And we're told, here's GPS, go and sell it to Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. So we then literally had to build a, a business, a company, find distribution, Look at new applications. I ran the technical side as essentially their technical director. And that moved into everything in the 90s. The GPS, you know, we did the first ever machine control projects, first ever precision farming projects. And I was really lucky that the UK was seen, or Europe was seen as a sort of, we were given a sort of a great degree of latitude. So we actually were the first people to put GPS on farming equipment and onto, onto construction equipment. And You know, the U.S. corporation saw that and and sort of built systems and and, and developed it. So, frankly, we did some amazing things, you know, from flying comets you probably remember the Comet airliner, to the North Pole and back with GPS on board to see how it performed over the North Pole and using GPS to measure the baseline of Everest, the Everest baseline, and all these cool stuff. I mean, it was just a joy and an amazing time, I think, to be in the industry. And that's obviously, I think, where... Mapping came in because you, you can have the greatest technology in the world that tells you where you are, but if you can't then relate that to the world around you, what's the point? No, and we had cool. problems. Absolutely. We had real problems with digital mapping. There just wasn't any. And so we worked with the early companies, ETAC as was, you know, and, and, and people like that to actually help them put the first mobile mapping systems together. And so that we could almost create the base map that we needed to then develop the applications. So it's fascinating sort of bootstrapping almost that the the industry bootstrapped itself from having GPS and then finding out the real problem was mapping. And nobody had any good mapping that was really coincident with GPS, not just in the context of the transformations, you know, which is relatively easy, but in context of the detail, you know, what's the point of of in-car navigation systems if you haven't got a map of the roads, and I had the pleasure of working in Japan in 1991 where they had some of the first Japanese, the first with in-car navigation systems, and they had a really well-developed digital map in Japan back then. And the UK had the beginnings of it with Alden surveys, you know, and OSCAR and things like that. And some countries did in Europe, the Dutch especially, the Swedes especially, they had good base maps. And that's really, I guess, how I fell into mapping. Uh, I sort of fell into it because it was a requirement of the company I worked for and so I started to focus on mapping, construction, applications, and that led me to Ordnance Survey. You know, mm-hmm. serendipity, my wife quite reasonably after our second child said, if I, you know, it'd be quite nice if I wasn't away the whole time, which I was uh, for a US company, you're yeah, literally away. And sort of time, 2001, it was the world was in a weird place, as you remember, in late 2001. And I didn't particularly want to spend a lot of time on aircraft. And I got approached by Ordnance Survey. And I went there for what I thought was going to be a few years and found it to be intellectually one of the most stimulating places, both in terms of the people there who are incredibly bright, as you know, but also the challenge that they have is, you know, probably one of the world's most specialized mapping organizations, really, you know, in terms of the detail of the map, the com- I say the complexity, but the structure of the, of the database they hold is, is up there with, you know, the world's best. But the political environment was just something that I'd never come across before. You know, you don't, don't have that constraint or that environment in the commercial sector, as you know well. You have shareholders and you have competitors, but you don't have this combination of sharehold, co- shareholder, competitor, so partner, owner, all mixed up in a political brew as well. Yeah.
1: And the introduction of the term stakeholder as well. You know, we're yeah. all of us suddenly became stakeholders you know we all had a stake in this thing yeah
2: as as many people keep on telling we pay your salaries and and it's a strange environment and i think the the uk environment is probably stranger than most because of the models that were adopted in the uk the trading fund model the sort of the political model in the uk where government is is incredibly involved in the you know at a level probably you know more than in the U.S. where people talk about politics, but doesn't have the same societal influence that local politics have or government politics have in the U.K. Yeah, fascinating, and I never really escaped.
1: <laughs> well, you did escape. I mean, I twenty years, just under twenty years later, you left the Ordnance Survey after two stints as standing chief executive, if I recall correctly. That's right, and. What are you doing now?
2: Probably like many people trying to find my space in a strange world at the moment, but actually working in geo mainly, working with, with smaller businesses especially or tech businesses that are trying to really work out what and how to move into geospatial and more importantly businesses that are in geospatial and are trying to sort of step up, I guess, trying to, to increase their presence both internationally and nationally. And and that's great because one of the things, and you know, it only comes with, you know, experience, which is a function of staying alive, which is, I guess, one of the, the greatest credits. But um, you get that experience, and and therefore you can look at problems, uh, you know, based on, you know, the mistakes you've made, frankly, and yeah. the knowledge you've got. And, and that's all sitting in your brain, in you know, this sort of weird miasma that somehow your brain is still able to extract
1: useful nuggets from occasionally, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think uh, we are of an age you know, now, where it's not often that a problem comes up that we can't relate to an experience that we've had somewhere in the last 40 or 45 years of commercial experience. I mean, I'm sure yeah, it will happen occasionally, but it's not very often.
2: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think, you know, well, and I think that's where, you know, mentoring is an important part of my career. You know, I was mentored straight out of college by an amazingly talented man who's who actually really saw his big contribution in that stage of his career to, to bringing me on board. I mean, that I, I was his work, you know, I was his apprentice and he genuinely gave of me three years of his, you know, pre-retirement years to explain in detail how positioning and te- navigation worked at a level that you'd you never got through learning books. I mean, it was, it was not just experiential, it was practical. And I really valued that because that, you know, looking back, that, really gave me the confidence and the lessons learned. You know, I used to have an incredibly long, thin office so I could roll out thermal printer paper. Um because you know it was pre-digital and I had my own punch card operator and she was great. And and you had to intimately get involved with every piece of information about the solution, the positioning. And that, you know, same with the early GPS, you know, I, I had to write the algorithms to computer position because the first receivers didn't have the processors in them to computer position. Or if they could, they could do it every minute. So, you know, and, and same with differential. I mean, the first few differential jobs I did in the early 80s, I was voice calling corrections over the air to the ships because <laughs> we hadn't really got the technology to do it fully digitally at that time. But the but the errors in GPS were quite slow moving. It was prior to selective availability. So I was voice sending a satellite 23 17.5 meters and the guy at the other end will be typing 17.5 meters the correction you know
1: <laughs> it's the day it is <laughs> you reminded me and i'm not going to name the company but you'll know who i'm talking about there was a company which launched a mobile navigation service and you had a <laughs> gps receiver in your car connected to their base station and somebody on a telephone talking to you and saying turn left turn right and you sort of reminded me that when you were talking about the GPS. I actually had that
2: system in my car I had a Hyundai back then and it actually had that and you used to give the person (laughs) you press a button and you give the person on the end of the phone the route you wanted and then it would load you the route back and then if there's any variations to it they would ring you up and tell you that (laughs) <laughs> that
1: they've had to change
2: the route. Yeah, it was good we'd
1: enough. We've come a long way. So when we were planning this chat, Neil, you said you wanted to talk about sustainable mapping. And I was scratching my head thinking, what on earth does he mean by sustainable mapping? And I worked out that it might mean environmentally sustainable and it might mean economically, commercially sustainable. So talk to me about sustainable mapping. Which is it? Environmental all- or commercial? <laughs>
2: All of them. I think that's the problem, isn't it? When we talk about sustainability, it's such a broad church. So I've been looking at two or three aspects of it. One is, you know, we had the classic use of uh, Earth observation mapping to, to achieve the sustainability goals. You know, the, the, the UN sustainability goals and some great work, some of our colleagues involved in looking at how, you know, that could be used to, to, to produce predictors for climate change, look at flooding, look at deforestation. And, you know, Earth observation is a great tool for that. And But the area I was looking at initially, which, which gave rise to that, that, you know, we put those two words together was, was looking at construction. Construction has been a a key driver for mapping, you know, essentially the, you know, the 50,000 whatever changes a day that the survey maps is really down to new construction, road changes, new built environment. So I was doing a piece of work, both for my own interest, but also with a company looking at to say, well, how well do we really understand where construction happens? not just in the physical sense, but how it impacts the sort of environmental aspects of that construction program. And just some very, very simple statistics, you know, 38% of carbon emissions come from construction in, in the world. What people don't realize is that 28% of that 38% actually comes from the opera, from the use of those construction buildings, the environment, you know, the energy use, the, 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 the in-use performance, the, in, the full life performance. 10% is in the embodied physical construction and then, of course, you've got the whole supply chain issues, you know, are the materials you use sustainable concrete, etc. So what I was really looking at was say, well, actually, if you really wanted to look at this in a spatial lens, you actually need to work out a way of, of standardizing the problem. What is a building? How do you describe it? Can you use the standards that we normally use in, in surveying, or mapping? You know, can you use city GML to describe a building? Can you use Revit or, you know, one of the BIM? sort of models modeling methodologies to do it can you use the RICS method the international property measurement standards you know for valuation if you want to describe a building in the context of its full life use how sustainable is it how is that building used within the building you know heating is different in a lobby area to in a work area it's different in a bathroom area how do you how do you break that down and actually monitor the building if as I say, 28% of the world's carbon emissions come from operating buildings, then we need to have a better a better baseline. And what I found is that whilst there's really good standards in terms of sustainability, and BRIAM, BRE in the UK lead that, you've got LEED in the US, you've got the Green Building Partnerships, you've got all these people looking at how to assess the build. And then you do have some specialist companies saying, and here's a, here's a, a management system to manage and operate your building. The spatial's not in there at all. So nobody's really looking at the volume of the building in an environmental way or in a sustainability way. And a good example of this is the RSCS standards. It's not the RSCS, it's the international standard, where a key part of the building is the roof space. But the roof space isn't classified as an object in that context. So effectively, when you're looking at a building, you're looking at it in terms of the habited space, not the unhabited space. But a lot of, as we know, a lot of emissions come through the redundant space. Mm-hmm. New space. So I was looking at how do you align those standards? How how do you, you know, is there a way of of not cre- creating a new standard, that would be a nightmare, but is there a way of creating a happy path that lets you connect them? And generally found that th- there's very little work being done in that space at the moment. And, in fact, if you take it up a level, to say a single building, you then look at community planning and you look at, you know, in the UK we've got some new planning obligations and new planning regulations coming through where they're looking at rewilding as part of the potential. How do you then connect that to what you're building? And has somebody actually modeled the the, the two? And you actually find that when you get down to it, there isn't a single model that even describes what we mean by net zero. So there's no agreed definition of net zero. Everybody's talking about net zero. And nobody's looking at it spatially in terms of a portfolio. You know, if you look at the big commercial real estate properties, they're built and held usually by the big pension funds or a big corporate investment yeah. fund and they're really not comparing and contrasting performance across their portfolio spatially in the way that you would expect you know they have point information for buildings but they don't really analyze it in a in a sort of spatial way you know your classic gis type approach you know can, can i look at all my assets can i look at the climate environment differences yeah can i look at the way that that building isn't just physically sustained you know there's some physical elements but what about transport to it what about you know what is it burning in the building you know most most yeah. commercial buildings use fossil fuels so you know for their area heat system so there's some fascinating areas that i think spatial can come into play
1: yeah and i as you were saying that it occurred to me that of course we have drifted from drawing polygons on a, a map space to represent buildings you know and there was yeah. a time when just being able to identify rectangles with an address was a wow moment, you know. But Absolutely. Actually, actually buildings are not rectangles on a map. They are structures which have power going into them, people going yeah. into them, gases and other things coming out of them. And and if we're when we start talking about, you know, the the net zero or carbon zero or in twenty thirty or something. We're not going to do that on a national scale. We're going to do that on lots of local scales. And for that, you need a spatial representation of Norwich, where you live, or Harringay, where I live. And you need to be looking at what can we do in this little area to get this area to zero because it's, it's got to be done locally, which means local people have to have ownership of it as well. Uh, uh, you
2: know, absolutely. And I think I think when you look at it, it's very fragmented at the moment, and that's, I guess, what is trying to happen at the moment the digital planning initiatives. How do you bring together more insight, more in- information? But they're still, to me, very focused on a single problem, which is the problem to build more houses. When the most sustainable house is the house you never built, actually. <laughs> and a bit like, you know, you're sustainable. You know, I'm very sustainable when it comes to my wardrobe because I don't buy new clothes. So. Yeah. And and the same, you know, you're looking at the moment. I mean, it's fascinating, you know, watching the sort of home working and, and the, the the consequences of COVID. We're just going, oh, it's not, it's not efficient to work in, you know, to travel to work. We should all be working at homes. But actually, it's not efficient working from your home. Your home is much less efficient than an office in terms of its energy performance. And your home hasn't been built to be heated, and that's why you see a lot of younger people, especially, who can't afford the heating bills, sitting in their coats working at home, or they're in a shared house. And the only space they've got is their bedroom or shared kitchen table. And and then we we haven't even considered the fact that, you know, if you're – I mean, it was involved in a bit of work for, for another customer that we looked at that sort of whole travel to work. And it is actually, bizarrely, in countries that have heating or air conditioning requirements, it is actually more efficient to commute to a central place to work than it is to work for your home, if you look at the overall energy sustainability which is a horrible thing to have to admit because it tells you how badly we built our homes. And yeah. frankly, the worst homes in terms of heat efficiency look like the pipe of place you live in, Stephen, <laughs> which we've well, we never built, you know, to be efficient.
1: Absolutely. So on the other we hand...
2: We those old houses down, we just bulldozed a lot of them <laughs> and we build lots of prefabricated houses that all look the same with all the same energy heat performance. That's a, my utopian vision. I'll let you explain that to
1: my wife, Neil, <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking that, I mean, everyone's been predicting the end of city centres and the death of the office and everything, and now we're realising that work and office spaces, and workspaces in general, are social spaces as well as places where we do the tasks that generate the income to pay for all of our other expenses. And I know from having uh, my youngest at home at the moment, he's desperate to get back into the office. You know, working from a room in the house all day long is just soul destroying. you know, and we're going to have to find a balance between traveling to work and the environmental side of that. And uh, in time, I'm sure transport will be resolved.
2: And I think that's the point I'm trying to make there, is until you look at the whole value chain, until you look at the whole life cycle of how you work, how you build, how you construct, and you look at it as a spatial problem, you know, the distance to work, the transport Mm. you're using, the inefficiency of that, you know, uh, until you look at a whole, you know, without saying system assistance, because I think that's old language, isn't it, whatever the new word is, until you look at that whole, you know, life cycle approach, you, you only see part of the picture. I mean, the bit that many people forget Is that most of the commercial real estate drives your pension? If if there's a sudden drop in the value of commercial real estate, people's pensions are going to start to fail. In fact, some big pension funds have actually frozen their pension funds when they're heavily leveraged into real estate. So you've got this really complex system we built where you know growth, and this comes down to you know the role of competition, you said about commercial sustainability, where Building new buildings, making money on new buildings is fundamentally driving economic growth. Worse than that is driving your pension funds and we know we've all got a pension crisis you know so you can imagine yeah. a double whack if, if, the, if the city centers suddenly become ghost towns and the pensions funds collapse you know then then there's going to be some significant economic shock to deal with. But that comes to the other question about sustainability, and, uh, and I'll use this analogy. One of the great things on the server, you're mapping at scale. You know, at any one point we had, maybe 1,500 people doing map production, both in the UK and in our partner suppliers in, in India or in Eastern Europe. And we'd have five aircraft up in the sky, and if there was a good sunny day over Scotland, you'll suddenly find your five aircraft were queued up with another 15 aircraft, all getting, trying to get in over Scotland to map Scotland. And the same with London. You know, getting into London airspace is very challenging, and so... So half the reason that London can only be flown once a year is because there are 10 companies all trying to fly it. And so, you know, air traffic control is saying, well, I can give you one slot each, you know, every four to five, you know, one one a month. You then have to ask the question, is it sustainable we have so many aircraft mapping the same thing? Or is it sustainable that we have so many satellites mapping the planet? Is it sustainable that we have five global platform providers all producing their own you know, global platforms, essentially mapping the planet. And, you know, the question is, to me, is, you know, how sustainable is it? And this comes to a basic commercial question, how sustainable is open competition? And I'm not asking necessarily that the answer is state-controlled mapping or regulated mapping. I'm just saying we've got to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Now, there's some really interesting things coming. You know, the last couple of years have been when, machine learning, I hate to use that term, but has come of age, you know, it is possible now to produce a pretty good 5,000 scale map automatically, pretty fully automatically from from satellite or aerial imagery, especially with the new 30 centimetre satellites coming up. And therefore the question is, is why are we going out to map at all? And this isn't, this isn't a challenge to sort of, you know, The OpenStreetMap community or the Ordnance Survey mapping surveyors, because there's always going to be some level of detail you can't pick up through remote sensing, either obscure detail or, or, you know, stuff you have to classify its functional use. But genuinely, I think enough mapping has been done that allows us to use at scale machine learning. And, And honestly, I've been on this journey for 15, 20 years from an operational efficiency basis. So I've gone through running multiple commercial packages to building our own as ordnance survey, and frankly, it is now possible to turn a city map around in, in a matter of weeks if you have the image, in fact, in a matter of days. What you don't have is obviously all the contextual detail, but that sits in other sources, other digital sources, administrative data files. And I honestly think that the future of mapping is, is at that shift point now where, you know, and I know everybody's saying this, but, you know, having come from 20 years of worrying about the world's most complex map, I hopefully have some credibility in saying it, that, you are at a point where you can actually map now with significantly reduced physical resource on the ground. And and I I guess I haven't looked at the sustainability of satellite launches as opposed to aircraft, but there's a question here about, you know, if we're going to choose technology, are we, you know, are we going to choose technology and solve the problem with the sustainability aspect to it? And I think the answer will be yes, because I think corporations will have their own ESG obligations I think the other thing that is coming, which just we tried. And when I first 18 years ago, we actually brought in millions of pounds a year of data from developers, used to be called codes, collection of data from external sources, uh, from developers, from architects, from uh, the as builds, uh, well, actually the pre builds, I do tell a light, all in DXF files. It took us more time to process the DXF files back then than it actually did to go out and survey. So we just ended up after 18 months switching that program off and sent the surveyors out because GPS was so efficient. And we you know reduced the field force from 600 down to 200 because GPS was so efficient. So there is an efficiency there. But actually now you're getting down to truly digital design files. You are getting down to anything that's built will have a digital file. Why aren't we using those? Why aren't we standardizing that workflow so that you know, a construction plan is validated and assured with a spatial context so that we can ensure that you can feed it in. Because theoretically, every house that's built or every road that's built has a digital file now associated with it.
1: So why aren't we- And you we... should be able to import those into the into the map. And yeah, so... it, as you were saying this, Neil, but there was a time when everybody was wrestling for competitive advantage. And so that's why you had 15 planes queued up because they all wanted to have the first imagery processed of that area. And there was a time when Google were striving to make their map and Apple was striving to make their map and Ordnance Survey and other national mapping agencies were doing the same and everyone was doing this. And, And there was this sort of battle for dominance, but actually we've got to a point now where this is, the landscape on which we're going to build other things it's not it doesn't confer competitive advantage having an accurate map and to that extent i think what's interesting is seeing for example amazon and facebook and apple yeah. and microsoft have all piled in resources to machine learning and aerial satellites and everything to boosting openstreetmap they're all getting the same data. They're all getting the advantage of each other's contribution, and the reason that they're doing that is because they don't see they don't see a competitive advantage from trying to do this on their own. Their their competitive advantage will be what they do with this base map data.
2: And I, I think I think you're right. There's an interesting circle, vicious circle, as much as a virtuous circle. Where, and this, I think we're at slightly different, I'd extend that a little bit more. So there used to be a time when catching data was everything, yeah? And then everybody said, Oh, don't worry about that. It's been commoditized. Well, it actually hasn't been commoditized. It's, it's just a bit easier. It's still expensive, but it's easier. And now it's all about machine learning. It's going to simplify the cost of production. And it absolutely is. You know, let's say it used to cost a thousand pounds a kilometer to capture complex urban geography. Let's say it now costs a hundred pounds a kilometer. What then becomes interesting is that as that automation increases, you then get a demand for more data again. Because people, they go, well, actually the cost now isn't in the, in production costs. It used to be in the, you know, big production factories in India or the cost of surveyors or the cost of big enterprise systems that you needed back office systems. And now that that's all been cloudified. I'm sure that's a term. Then it really comes down to, well, who's got the data again? So I actually think it will drive a need for more data. But I think that data is coming from different sources. And I mean, a friend of ours, Ed, Ed Parsons, who many of you will know, you know, talked about this years ago. So where our daily activity collects the data, you know, I worked with Mobileye and Intel company who are using yeah. the drive assist systems in, in your car, the system that does lane following braking to capture mapping data. And of course, the moment you have that in 20% of all cars, which it is now, you can't buy a modern car without that. Then the cars become by default mapping cars and then we've got the ethics yeah. issue which i know i know you guys talked about in a gym the other week but ultimately the cars can't help themselves they're mapping the real world continuously and there's gonna be millions of them out there and and you know smart mapping agencies i think Ed referred to them years ago and we can't help that and we can't help you know our own ability to capture data you know using our iphones or whatever so i think it will become this flood and actually the smarts will be controlling managing organizing that because the biggest problem with ordnance survey was never the surveying itself i used to love managing that. The biggest problem I always had was the back office infrastructure, the, the, the systems, the technology platforms that you needed to build to consume and manage this data at scale. And those problems still haven't been solved. I mean, you know, I, I've used the machine learning platforms of most of the big players, and they're good, but they're not there yet. And, and the reason they're not there yet, and they're getting there, is that they're missing the trainer data sets. Of course, the one thing Ordnance Survey has, or the, or the Dutch Cadastro or the Swedish National Mapping Agency, you know, have is 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 the mother of all training data sets. You know, it's it's an amazingly classified structured data set. And that's the same with OpenStreetMap. Where OpenStreetMap exists in the in the necessary level of detail, it's an awesome training data set. But actually OpenStreetMap is still quite, you know, when you look at it, you know, it, it's still got areas that that need need in Philly. And I don't mean in the UK, I mean, you know, and there's great community mm. mapping efforts trying to achieve that but actually the really interesting thing is that you can take the machine learning from a complex geography like the UK and deploy it to another city anywhere in the world people you know think well oh, surely mapping is different you know well, yeah there's some subtle differences but actually the algorithms you build from a well mapped country are highly deployable into an unmapped country and I think, you know, that, that's a great opportunity, I think.
1: So a last question for you, because as you <laughs> predicted, we were going to run over. And so this <laughs> is my last question for you. Given the changes in technology, given the need to be both environmentally and commercially sustainable, what changes do you foresee for national mapping agencies, particularly, obviously, the OS, more generally, over the next decade?
2: I generally think that government will continue to make an intervention in mapping because of the importance around safety of life, security, you know, defence, the classic drivers, land ownership, land rights, all those sorts of things. But I think the – and then the commercial companies will essentially hoover up the the, guess what classically we used to call medium scale mapping you know the five to ten thousand scale location based type services mapping application but the large scale the very detailed mapping that defines land tenure land rights uh i think will stay in the domain of government purely because of a affordability you know it's expensive to map at that scale and essentially it's market The market doesn't really operate at that scale. The UK is very lucky. You know, the utilities will pay for the data, government will pay for the data, and maybe you can sell it again to the land and property sector. But you've got enough of a market to allow this very detailed data to be collected. In many countries, you know, the just good enough data is good enough. And so the land rights, the land tenure, the land ownership stuff is gonna, I think, retain or remain in the rights of 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 government. But I do think you see a natural move away from a mapping agency trying to be all things to all people to becoming a much more specialized uh, organization and I'm not predicting the con- the combination of land registry and 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 national mapping what i'm saying is that it will become a clearer clearer defined scope and the countries that don't have that the countries where the mapping agency has only operated the topographic map at you know ten thousand scale or twenty thousand scale will find their models are unsustainable and you know, and, and I think it will, it will drive the mapping agency to specialisms, which is fine, you know, because why wouldn't? You know, you really only want the government to inv- intervene when there's market failure. And if there's no market failure, don't intervene. But, you know, a commercial business is going to struggle to map or worry about getting a new property onto a map in the Western Isles of Scotland, you
1: know. Uh, but not only that, you've got the issue, and I think it's a massive driver in developing co- economies, is land ownership. Yeah, yeah. Land ownership is incredibly important to us. You know, if you own your house, wherever it is, in whatever country it is, you want that title to that property and the borders of the boundary of that property to be registered and protected by law. And- Sorry, I
2: mean, that's an area that I looked at for the last three or four years at Ordnance Survey when I was looking at the international uh, opportunities, because one way for com- companies like Ordnance Survey to retain a scale is, is, to, is, to, is to operate internationally. And so I was focused very much on land rights and and land services. Managed land services is is the term that we use there. And that was saying people don't realize that, you know, 70% of the land that is meant to have ownership rights doesn't actually have them defined. You know, so there's yeah. a huge amount of informal rights, and and generally speaking, in countries where the governments are, should we say, not as comfortable, not as there to look after citizens as much as anyone would hope, then then it becomes a a, a real issue. And uh, major land reform programs, and if you're looking at uh, the future of mapping, in terms of you know, an area I'd focus on, it is that land rights issue, because yeah. economies can only develop when people can own their property and invest in their land. If it's an agricultural, you want to be able to get loans, no. you need your title to borrow money to become more efficient. You want to get a mortgage, essentially as a loan, it gives you the freedom to spend your disposable income on important things mm-hmm. like an iPad. And, you know, and, and so it is fundamental. And I think you know, one of the concerns around places that, you know, I've started to work more in in the last year and had been through a few years for that and in Africa especially is how mapping is seen by other countries as a key resource. In China, for example, they, they see mapping as fundamental to their, their initiatives in Africa, not just mapping yeah. the resource, but actually providing infrastructure. So, so it's, the, it's the great game. I think it was called originally. Didn't, the, didn't we map India initially to all the boundaries?
1: <laughs> we did. And I, I'm reminded that well over 10 years ago, I got invited to come and speak at one of the Ordnance Survey's international mapping conferences, the Cambridge conferences. And, oh, the, year that I came, yeah. and the year that I came, there was a youngish man, and I think he was from the, the Ethiopian mapping agency. I can't oh, quite yeah. remember where yeah, yeah, he was yeah, from. Remember, yes, yeah, yeah. And he told his, his life story because he would started as a teenage soldier in a long-running civil war carrying an AK-47, and he ended up 20 years later running or being a senior officer in the National Mapping Agency. And what he was saying is, you will never have peace and the foundations for stable economic growth unless you have some way of defining and then protecting property ownership. If the guy with the bigger army can come and take your field, there's never ever going to be investment in agriculture. There's never going to be anything. And it really, you know, it had a massive impact on me at the time. And I think what you're saying is absolutely echoing that. So so perhaps what we perhaps what we see in the future is sort of for the for the national mapping agencies, there will be the trend that Bob Barr has been advocating for the last twenty years of Bringing national mapping agencies and some kind of cadastral service together.
2: I, I think the social. If you look at it, sustainability and social aspects of map, and, and I was really pleased to see this debate. You know, around you know ethics, but you know it's a debate we've been having for years in mapping. Truthfully, it's just become more relevant today than it's ever been. But actually, the real ethics come into mapping as a means to define social rights and, and social equality, and and you know you asked the question at the beginning you know where do I see myself working that's an area that i'm fascinated in personally and and, and as things open up a little bit more there's a couple of projects i've got to to help in that space because if there's one thing i've learned is how to map a country you know it's it, you can't i can't unlearn it you know i've spent more more times worrying in the last 20 years about keeping Britain's map up to date because I didn't want the members giving me a hard time or local government giving me a hard time or the politician giving me. Sometimes I've brought up in front of politicians and told off. It's phenomenal. I mean, I, you know, I've had more tellings off than, than than any grown man should have had in his professional career, <laughs> usually because we've made a small change to a map. we defined a church differently or we changed the colour on a, on a map uh, tile or you know, as we were, and we can't go into the open data conversation. Or there was a whole no. uh, aspects of, of of open I data. I think that's uh, one for another maybe day. time. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Neil, just fantastic talking to you today. We could have gone on and on and on, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up. I think we're going to have. I think we're going go to <laughs> we're gonna have to get you back to talk about open data because you and I were both there in 2009 when the Ordnance Survey's Open Data Initiative started. I think we can both look back now 12 years on. That's a conversation for another day. For now, let's wrap it there. I tell you about the time I was
2: told off in number 10. So okay. I'll keep that
1: story to <laughs> Keep that one for the next podcast. Neil Aykroyd, thank you very much for being on the GeoMod podcast. Yes, my pleasure, my
0: pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing events that you may find of interest. You can also of course follow us on Twitter where our handle is GeoMob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Freifogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMob event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.